Today on Reparations in Action. This is what we're talking about, that there is no such thing as the age of discovery, as the age of exploration. It was the age of conquest, destruction, genocide. You're listening to Reparations in Action. Uhuru! You're listening to the Reparations in Action podcast and FM radio show, White Lies Shattered series. My name is Jamie Simpson. Reparations in Action is a program of white solidarity with black power, and the first 13 episodes we have dubbed the White Lies Shattered series, which will use the theory of African internationalism developed by Chairman Omali Eshetela of the African People's Socialist Party to overturn the insidious lies we tell ourselves as white or European people about the nature and origin of capitalism. At a time when parasitic capitalism is in the deepest crisis we have ever seen, from which it clearly cannot recover, we believe it is our responsibility to understand the history of how we got here through the eyes of the African working class. We will identify a myth or lie that this colonial system spreads about itself each week and use the historical record and African internationalism to shatter that lie once and for all. We believe reparations to African people is the key question of our times and is one that demands action on the part of European or white people. As always, we'd like to salute Black Power 96, where this show is aired weekly and where it is being recorded. Today we are taking on the white lie that Europe discovered the world in the age of exploration. With us is Penny Hess, chair of the African People's Solidarity Committee and author of Overturning the Culture of Violence, and Jesse Neville, chair of the Uhuru Solidarity Movement. Welcome and Uhuru, Penny. Uhuru, Jamie and Jesse. I'm really glad to be back on Reparations in Action, and I'm excited that we can take on another insidious lie of the colonial narrative. And this time, as you said, we're talking about the lie that Europe discovered the world, and it was the age of discovery, they sometimes say, or the age of exploration. And this is a lie that is not only a justification for colonialism, genocide, plunder, and rape, it's also a total delusion because there was a thriving, vibrant world out there of many, many, many different cultures and an exchange of ideas, an exchange of products and interaction. It was Europe that was isolated, but Africans, Asians, indigenous people, and, and Arabs were interacting and many had traveled to, to many places around the world. So it was a very, very amazing world that existed before Europe entered into it as the colonizer, as the imperialist, as the perpetrator of genocide and plunder. So I want to begin by saluting Chairman Omalia Shatella, who is the chairman of the African People's Socialist Party. Chairman Omali has fought for the liberation of Africa and African people his entire life. And he leads and builds organization all around the world with the understanding that African people are one nation of people wherever they have been forcibly dispersed throughout the world in the process of kidnapping, selling them and stealing their labor, their land and their resources. 
And I salute Chairman O'Malley Eschatella also because he formed the African People's Solidarity Committee, which I have the honor of being the chair of. And this is an organization of white people organizing in the white communities as black power in white face under the leadership of the African revolution. It's very, very exciting, fighting for reparations to African people. And as a member of APSC, as I, as I have said before, one of our jobs, one of our mandates is to win other white people, to begin to see that we ourselves have set ourselves up as the subjects of history, the victors, the conquerors, and the colonizers, that these are white lies that we're talking about, but what we're really talking about is the colonial narrative, the narrative that is put out to, uh, to justify all of the crimes against humanity that are carried out and, um, and, and, are the foundation of the capitalist system, the parasitic capitalist system, and also um, the essence of what the social system of capitalism provides for us today. So, you know, from the leadership of the African working class, we want to see the world, as we say, through the eyes and the experience of the colonized African, indigenous, and oppressed and colonized peoples. And we want to begin to embrace that view ourselves and to see what it takes to see the world as it really is and what it, what um, made the world be and the contradictions of the world, where they came from and how they were created and what it is for us versus the experience of the African, the colonized person. And it is Chairman Omalia Shatella who has given us such a powerful scientific way of seeing the world and being connected to it and taking responsibility for who we are and rectify a relationship to African and oppressed peoples of the world. So we want to, um, we want to say again that we are not objective, that we actually see, are biased. We see the world through the eyes of the African working class and the oppressed on this planet. And we feel that what is called objectivity by the mainstream media is simply um, a way of, of expressing the point of view of the status quo of white power. So we want to show the other side, and, and it's very, very exciting. So I'm going to begin today with a, a brief quote from Chairman O'Malley Shatella from his book, Vanguard, The Advanced Detachment of the African Revolution, which was the political report to the 7th Congress of the African People's Socialist Party that was held in 2018 in St. Louis. And the chairman says, Europe's attack on Africa was an effectively an assault on Africa's ability to produce life for itself. That is so profound. I just want to stop there and have you like really think about and consider what that sentence really means. This assault has had the effect of pushing Africa and Africans out of history. History being the summation of the ongoing struggle to produce and reproduce life. If we get the question down to its very core, a society is structured around the ways that a people produce life, produce what they need to live and to continue their society and produce 
new members of their society, children, of course, to, um, to carry on this particular way of living. And the chairman says that slavery, genocide, and colonialism are the stuff of which capitalism was born. African enslavement was the first capital in the development of capitalism. The prevailing legal system, culture, religion, and general philosophical outlook or worldview constitute the superstructure of capitalism thus conceived. So everything that we think, every idea that we have, every, as the chairman says, dream and aspiration is based on this material reality that we have what what we have, that we live the highest standard of living in the entire world based on, on the material existence of the fact that slavery, genocide, and colonialism is what it took to build and create and birth capitalism, which benefits us as Europeans and white people, and that the superstructure are all the institutions, all the ideas, that the, the superstructure, as the chairman is saying, is a natural product and reflection of this economic base of colonial slavery. Slavery and colonialism, the chairman continues, gave rise not only to capitalism, but also to the capitalists and working classes alike of Europe and North America. The workers and the bourgeoisie, the two primary capitalist defining classes, have occasionally fought great battles with each other since their inception as contending social forces. Nonetheless, both were born and developed on a platform of slavery and colonialism. Consequently, what is often called class struggle inside the US and Europe is actually contention among the workers and the ruling class for control of the parasitic capitalist pedestal and its stolen resources. So, you know, I wanted to um, just really have that as the basis for what we're talking about and uh, exploring in a real sense today. And I'm also want to say that last week we, we quoted from historic, historian Hosea Jaffe, who just died a few years ago, but he was born in, in South Africa, but he was European, and um, he died in Italy. But he has written some very, very thought-provoking and very powerful um, documents and books, including the book A History of Africa, that Chairman O'Malley Shatella has used to back up his theory of African internationalism. And I want to, to um, you know, talk about that and read a little bit more of that before I go on to reading a couple of other things that I think will be very, very interesting today. So again, Chairman O'Malley Shatella makes the point that the driving force of society is the production and reproduction of life. But European production and reproduction of life has been parasitic for a very long time. So capitalism, which is parasitic, the social system we live under 
is parasitic and was born that way. And as the chairman says, every dream and aspiration that white people have requires drone strikes in the Middle East, genocide in the Congo, which is what is going on right now so that we can get com computers and mobile phones, which require coltan and other precious minerals coming from the Congo responsible for US-backed proxy wars that have murdered over 10 million African people in Congo, including little children, women, and men, um, especially in the eastern part of the country where the all of these minerals are located. And that that every dream and aspiration of white people requires poverty, colonialism, police murder for African people, indigenous people are forced to live on places like Pine Ridge Reservation inside this country because the land is stolen from them where men have the life expectancy of only 48 years and the average family annual income is only $3,400. Yet this is their land. It was stolen from them and genocide was committed against them. Africans also are colonized inside the borders of the US and live as colonial subjects backed up by a colonial po police force that shoots down, murders African people every single day in this country as we see as we saw with the police murder of George Floyd in this past year. And um, that is, does not happen to white people, not in that way. It doesn't happen to white people. This is something that is a colonial reality in which a whole people occupies another people through state power for profit. So if we're talking about the question of producing life for ourselves, this means that, that producing life for, uh, for us, producing life for ourselves, means taking that ability from others, either by death or by a life of endless suffering, war, powerlessness, and exploitation. We don't produce life for ourselves. We take that from Africans, from indigenous. We take what they should be doing for their own society, their own culture, their own social system, and we appropriate it so that we are taking their ability to, to produce for themselves. Even their children, you know, goes towards the building of white power and the white society. So for others, for us to live, it means a quick death or a slow, painful death for everybody else. And this is what colonialism is. This is the reality of what being a colonizer means. And this is what Chairman O'Malley Chatella means by what he calls parasitism and sitting on the pedestal on the backs of African and oppressed peoples. Genocide was the norm throughout our European history and now indigenous African, the people of India, Congo now, Yemen. I mean, this, this system, Europeans have wiped out entire populations of colonized people over and over and over again, often, generally speaking, as very popular campaigns among the white society and without a second thought. 
still being Christian, still being considering ourselves the good, the rational, the brilliant, as we are wiping out whole peoples every day. And now there are increasing numbers of scientists and even the United at the US-backed United Nations who concur that the Earth is pretty much at the end of its holding capacity for human beings and all life due to human, as they call it, human-induced climate change. And I just want to say that I disagree with the term human-induced. This climate change is capitalism-induced. It is white human-induced. When African people, indigenous people, and other colonized people on the planet Earth had power, when they had their state power, they were not creating and just climate change and destroying the earth. That was capitalism. That was white power. And that we have to understand that and take responsibility for that because the only way that it can be stopped is through overturning the system and the leadership of a new society built by African, indigenous, and oppressed and colonized people. But as we know, the parasitic mentality, the European mentality, is use it, destroy it, claim it, use it up, throw it out, regardless of the human price. And then assault the next thing, the next source of profit. But the world, the planet, has an ultimate carrying capacity, and now we are facing that reality. Indigenous people, African people, these cultures did not destroy the planet again. And so driving species extinct was a conscious part of genocide, a conscious part of parasitic capitalism. And, you know, we see that uh, Europeans drove the buffalo extinct, and that was part of the genocide against indigenous people. So our narrative is that we live at the highest standard of civilization that has ever existed. This is the colonial narrative. This is the white narrative that we discovered the world and we brought civilization, knowledge to the rest of the world. Of course, at gunpoint and, e and economic control and stealing their resources. But this is, this is, um, this is civilization. And if they just comply, then of course they will experience that. And nothing could be further than the truth when the, the reality is in this world today, over 50% uh, or 80% of the population of the planet lives on less than $10 a day. So this is never, never, never going to be, um, have equality, et cetera, in the world under parasitic capitalism, it will take a new world of genuine socialism in which African workers have power to, um, to build a society in which all human beings can live. But when a society is successful at producing and reproducing life for itself, it is often a satisfied society, a sedentary society, meaning it's agricultural, or it does hunting and gathering, but within a prescribed territory. In Europe, the societies were nomadic. They were warlike. They were, they plundered. They, they stole from each other. They, they took resources from other people. This is how the society was built. And as the scientist born that we, we quoted in our last show in Senegal, Sheikh Antadia had laid out, he was born in Senegal, 
um, people had what they needed in Africa, easily at hand, and were happy, open, and welcoming to other cultures, but not necessarily, they, they didn't necessarily want to travel. They lived in communal societies. They did not have private property. But Europe did not have what it needed to easily produce life. Barren land, the need to travel, nomadic society rather than sedentary, etc. As you know, as as we're showing here, and Jaffe says that for most of the world and early on in Europe, production centered around use value, make it to use it to produce life. But for Europeans, production soon centered around exchange value, therefore a, co a commodity. And, that, and so let me just read a little bit, a quick passage here from, again, Hosea Jaffe, the his, A History of Africa. And he's saying that Europe was born out of colonialism as the exploiting, oppressing, negating pole that tried always to destroy and assimilate its opposite pole, the rest of the world. And he's saying, with capitalism arose Europe, and with Europe, the myth of European civilization, a civilization based on African slavery, American plantations, Asian spices, precious metals from all three non-European continents, based too on Indian numerals, Arab algebra, astronomy and navigation, and Arab Indian took Vasco da Gama to India from Mombasa, and Chinese gunpowder, paper, and compasses. This non-European, European civilization was the Narcissus-like admiration of its own conquests the sword, gunfire, murder, rape, robbery, robbery, and slavery formed the real material basis for the idea of European superiority. And Chairman O'Malley Chatella has quoted that many times to produce his political theory of African internationalism. And so, you know, when we talk about this idea of a commodity and what it takes to, for the European narrative, you know, we see a society in which human beings were made into commodities, African people, for their valuable, for their exchange value, African human beings turned into human commodities and, and stolen labor, enslaved, worked to death, beaten, facing violence every single day, ripped from their communities, their families, their children, becoming nothing more than an object to, to be used up and destroyed. And it was this, the skyrocketed wealth production for the conquerors, for Europeans, the colonizers, and for the entire European population for the first time in history, that created wealth that was so massive that that Spain's economy collapsed because it was stealing so much silver and gold from the Americas and because of this trade, this what was called the trade the sale of African human beings to, to benefit and create the Industrial Revolution for Europe. So this is what Karl Marx called, as Chairman, as Chairman O'Malley Chatella points out to us, it's called the primitive accumulation of capital or the first accumulation. It was the startup money. It's where capitalism got its startup money. 
And as Chairman O'Malley Shatella has shown, this primitive accumulation is how capitalism was born, not a later stage of capitalism. Capitalism was born of imperialism. It was born of the vast wealth from assaulting Africa, stealing its resources, stealing its human beings, and, and this forced labor. It was born from the stolen land with all of its resources of what is now called the Americas, of the indigenous people and the genocide against it. It was born of the opium wars against China, which forced China to basically become a colony or semi-colony of Britain that forced drugs onto into the people of, of China and forced them to sell the British tea. The Chinese did not want to do that, and they fought many uh, opium wars to, to defend themselves against that. And, you know, it's the taking of, of India and the colonization of India, of Southeast Asia, of Vietnam, and of basically the entire planet, which was a playground and a source of money for white people, source of, of um, even colleges and universities and churches and jobs and a whole, you know, all of the commodities that we take for granted, from coffee to sugar to tea. This is how capitalism was born. And the colonial narrative calls it the age of exploration or the age of discovery, or at other times, manifest destiny, kill everything that moves, justified by Christianity and whiteness. This gives us opportunity, prosperity, and education. So this affects, again, everything that we see and understand. So in terms of what Europe discovered out there, the world was there. It was living, interacting, investigating. It was an incredible place, but the European, again, was the outsider. So I, I just want to start reading, first of all, um, from this great book called The Con American Holocaust, The Conquest of the New World by David Stannard. And it has just amazing history in it. It has so much documentation of the incredible civilizations of, of indigenous people, both in North America, South America, and in the Caribbean, and um, throughout this hemisphere. And it's, you know, he also is talking about the conditions that Europeans faced at the time that they rescued themselves by going out to plunder, enslave, and commit genocide against the majority of the planet Earth. So I'm going to start on chapter three. And Standard writes, the Spain that Christopher Columbus and his crews left behind just before dawn on August 3rd, 1492, as they sailed forth from Palos and out into the Atlantic, was for most of its people a land of violence, squalor, treachery, and intolerance. In this respect, Spain was no different from the rest of Europe. Epidemic outbreaks of plague and smallpox, along with routine attacks of measles, influenza, diphtheria, typhus, typhoid fever, and more, frequently swept European cities and towns clean of 10 to 20% of their populations in a single stroke. 
As late as the mid-17th century, more than 80,000 Londoners, one out of every six residents of the city, died from plague in a matter of months. And again and again, as with its companion diseases, the pestilence they called the Black Death returned. Like most of the other urban centers in Europe, says one historian who has specialized in the subject, every 25 or 30 years, sometimes more frequently, the city was convulsed by a great epidemic. Indeed, for centuries, an individual's life chances in Europe, pest houses, pest house cities were so poor that the natural populations of the towns were in perpetual decline that was offset only by in-migration from the countryside. In-migration, says one historian, was the vital if the cities were, were to be preserved from extinction. And that, you know, just look at now. The U.S. has 500,000 people died of COVID, the highest percentage of the population of any country, any country in the world. And, you know, the CDC is saying that they expect another, close to another 100,000 to die from COVID from June 1st, even by June 1st, even with the, um, with the vaccines going on. And, all, and, and of course, they can't guarantee that the vaccines are even working because of all these variants and ways that this pestilence, this plague is coming up. So, um, so to continue from standard, he says, famine too was common. What J.H. Eliot has said of 16th century Spain has held true throughout the continent for generations beyond memory. The rich ate and ate to excess, watched by a thousand hungry eyes as they consumed their gargantuan meals. The rest of the population starved. And this was in normal times. The slightest fluctuation in food prices could cause the sudden deaths of additional tens of thousands of, of who lived on the margins of perpetual hunger. So precarious was the existence of these multitudes in France that as late as the 17th century, each average increase in the price of wheat or millet directly killed a proportion of the French population equal to nearly twice the percentage of Americans who died in the Civil War. And that was the 17th century when times were getting better. In the 15th and 16th century, prices fluctuated constantly, leading people to complain, as Spanish agriculturalists did in 1513, that today a pound of mutton costs as much as a whole sheep used to, a loaf as much as a, a bushel and a half of wheat, a pound of wax or oil as much as 25 Spanish pounds. And, you know, it just goes on to say, I want to read a little bit more here, Skipping down, Standard says, roadside ditches filled with stagnant water served as public latrines in the cities of the 15th century, and they would continue to do so for centuries to follow. So too would other noxious habits and public health hazards of the time persist into the future from the practice of leaving the decomposing offal of butchered animals to fester in the streets to London's, quote, special problem, as historic, historian Lawrence Stone puts it, of, of pores holes. They were large, deep, open pits in which were laid the bodies of the poor side by side, row upon row. Only when the pit was filled 
with bodies was it finally covered over with earth. As one contemporary quoted by Stone, delicately observed how noisome the stench is that arises from these holes, so stowed with dead bodies, especially in sultry seasons and after rain. So, you know, he's talking about that. He's saying that street crime in most cities lurked around every corner. One especially popular technique for robbing someone was to drop a heavy rock or chunk of masonry on his head from an upper story window and then to rifle the body for jewelry and money. This was a time, observes one historian, when it was one of the festive pleasures of midsummer day to burn alive one or two dozen cats. And when, as another historian once put it, the continuous disruption of town and country by every kind of dangerous rabble and permanent threat of harsh and unreliable law enforcement nourished a feeling of universal uncertainty. This was Europe. This was Europe. Um, he's saying that as for rural life in calmer moments, the 17th century description of human existence in the French countryside gives an apt summary of what historians for the past several decades have been uncovering in their, their research on rustic communities in Europe at large during the entire late medieval to early modern epoch. Quote, sullen animals, male and female, are scattered over the country, dark, livid, scorched by the sun, attached to the earth they, dug, they dig up and turn over with invincible persistence. They have a kind of articulate speech, and when they rise to their feet, they show a human face. And indeed, they are men. At night, they retire to dens where they live on black bread, water, and roots. You know, this is a picture and there's much more that he's saying. This goes on for pages and pages. But I, I wanted to also read from what Standard wrote about the cultures and incredible civilizations of Mexico and Central America. So he says, it's gone now drained and desiccated in the aftermath of the Spanish conquest. But once there was an interconnected complex of lakes high up in the Valley of Mexico that was as long and as wide as the city of London is today. Surrounding these waters, known collectively as the Lake of the Moon, were scores of towns and cities whose population combined with that of the outlying communities of central Mexico totaled about 25 million men, women, and children. On any given day, as many as 200,000 small boats moved back and forth on the Lake of the Moon, pursuing the interests of commerce, political intrigue, and simple pleasure. The southern part of the Lake of the Moon was filled with brilliantly clear spring-fed water but the northern part in the rainy season became brackish and sometimes inundated the southern region with an invasion of destructive salty currents. So the people of the area built a 10 mile long stone and clay and masonry dike separating the lower third of the lake from the upper two thirds, blocking the salt water when it appeared, but through an ingenious use of slice gates allowing the heavy water traffic on the lake to continue its rounds unobstructed by massive, by the massive levee wall. The southern part of the lake thus became as well a thoroughfare, an immense fresh water fish pond. 
And, you know, he goes on to say that, and then he quotes what some of the conquistadors actually wrote about the cities, uh, like Tenochtitlan, um, which is now Mexico City, which was of the Az Aztec nation. And, you know, of course, this is what the conquistadors wrote as they were in the process of destroying the civilization and everything in it. So this is what Bernal Diaz del Castillo wrote. When we entered the city of Iztapalapa, the appearance, the appearance of palaces in which they housed us, how spacious and well-built they were, of beautiful stonework and cedar wood, and the wood of other sweet-scented trees, with great rooms and courts, wonderful to behold, covered with awnings of cotton cloth. When we had looked well at this, at all of this, we went to the orchard and the garden, which was such a wonderful thing to see and walk in, that I was never tired of looking at the diversity of trees and noting the scent which each one had and the paths full of roses and flowers and the native fruit trees and native roses and the pond of fresh water. There was another thing to observe. The great canoes were able to pass into the garden from the lake through an opening that had been made so that there was no need for the occupants to land. And all was cemented and very splendid with many kinds of stone monuments with pictures on them, which gave much to think about. Then the birds of many kinds and breeds which came into the pond. I say again that I stood looking at it and thought that never in the world would there ever be discovered lands such as these. So that is from the conquistador who was part of wiping out, slaughtering, the literal tens of millions of people and this incredible civilizations of the Aztec and others in, in Mexico and in Central America. And another um, one, one wrote, uh, Bernal Diaz wrote, one could see over everything very well. And we saw the three causeways which led into Tenochtitlan that is the causeway of its Palapa, by which we had entered four days before, and that of Tacuba, and that of Tepiaquilla. And we saw the fresh water that comes from Chapa, Chapultepec, which supplies the city. And we saw the bridges on the three causeways, which were built at certain distances. Uh, a part through which the water of the lake flowed in and out from one side to the other. And we beheld on that great lake a great multiple multitude of canoes, some coming with supplies of food and others returning with cargoes of merchandise. And we saw that from every house of that great city and all the other cities that were built on the water, it was impossible to pass from house to house except by drawbridges, which were made of wood, or on canoes, and we saw in those cities temples and oratories like towers and fortresses all gleaming white, and it was a wonderful thing to behold. So, you know, th this goes on, and he talks about, um, he quotes more things that, you know, he, he talks about this great market, 
which they encountered and that at the center of the city facing the volcanoes, volcanoes stood two huge and exquisitely ornate ceremonial pyramids, man-made mountains of uniquely Aztec construction and design. But what seems to have impressed the Spanish visitors most of the view of Tenochtitlan from within its precincts were not the temples or other magnificent public buildings, but rather the marketplaces that dotted the residential neighborhoods and and um, and the enormous so-called great market that sprawled across the city's northern end. This area with arcades all around, according to Cortez, was the central gathering place where more than 60,000 people come each day to buy and sell and where every kind of merchandise produced in these lands is found. Provisions as well as ornaments of gold and silver, lead, brass, copper, tin, stone, shells, bones, and feathers. Cortez also describes special merchant areas where timber and tiles and other building supplies were bought and sold, along with much firewood and charcoal, earthenware braziers and mats of various kinds of mattresses for beds and other finer ones for seats and for covering rooms and hallways. Each kind of merchandise is sold in its own street without any mixture whatsoever, Cortez wrote. They are very particular in this. Even entertainers had a residential district of their own, says Bernal Diaz, a place where there lived many great people who had no other occupation than to be dancers and others who used stilts on their feet and others who flew when they danced up in the air and others like Mary Andrews, clowns. There were streets where herbalists plied their trade areas for apothecary shops and shops like barbers where they have their hair washed and shaved and shops where they sell food and drink, wrote Cortez, as well as greengrocer streets where one could buy every sort of vegetable, especially onions, leeks, garlics, common cress and watercress, borage, sorrel, teasels and artichokes. And there are many sorts of fruits among which are berries, cherries, plums, like those in Spain. There were stores and streets that specialized in game birds of every species found in this land. Chickens, partridges, quails, wild ducks, flycatchers, widgeons, turtle doves, etc. Um, there was so much more in this mercantile center over overseen by officials who enforce laws of fairness regarding weights and measures and the quality of goods purveyed. That Bernal Diaz said, quote, we were astounded at the number of people and the quantity of merchandise that it contained and at the good order and control that it contained, for we had never seen such a thing before. So, you know, it just goes on and on describing this incredible, incredible society that was amazing, that had whole streets just for one item that it, that it sold and lived in this beautiful way of which the arts were part of life and healing. And it was nothing like existed anywhere in Europe or anywhere, even in the world. So this was what the Europeans did. They saw this, destroyed it, consciously committed genocide against the people. So much so that by the turn of the year 1600 and during the 17th century, the earth experienced a global cooling because so many farmlands of indigenous 
peoples in Africa, in the Americas, and around the world had been destroyed, that um, the world, the earth, the climate got cooler from that. So this is, this is what we're talking about, that there is no such thing as the age of discovery, as the age of exploration. It was the age of conquest, destruction, genocide for us, for the white colonizer. And it is, to me, very, very powerful to be able to see the truth about the world. This is just a little snippet of what we're going to be talking about over the next several weeks. Uhuru. You're listening to Reparations in Action. Reparations now! Uhuru, uh, Penny, thank you so much uh, for going over that. It's so eye-opening. To, to get a handle on the reality of where we came from as Europeans, as white people, how we reached this point in history and th- this whole myth that we tell ourselves about having, you know, come out of Europe during an, a, a Renaissance age of exploration, of discovery. We wanted to share these ideas. It's, it's so foul when you look at this reality. And, you know, I wanted to, if it's okay, just briefly read from Open Veins of Latin America by Eduardo Galliano um, from this chapter called mm-hmm. Lust for Gold, Lust for Silver. And this just to flesh out what you were talking about from Standard about uh, Columbus, okay? And it says here, three years after the discovery, of Colum- the discovery, Columbus personally directed the military campaign against the natives of Haiti, which he called Española. A handful of cavalry, 200 foot soldiers, and a few specially trained dogs decimated the Indians. More than 500 shipped to Spain were sold as slaves in Seville and died miserably. Some theologians protested and the enslavement of the Indians was formally banned at the beginning of the 16th century. Actually, it was not banned, but blessed. Before each military action, the captains of the conquest were required to read to the Indians without an interpreter, but before a notary public, a long and rhetorical requiemento, exhorting them to adopt the holy Catholic faith. Well, quote, if you do not, or if you maliciously delay in doing so, I certify that with God's help, I will advance powerfully against you and make war on you wherever and however I am able and will subject you to the yoke and obedience of the church and of their majesties and take your women and children to be slaves. And as such, I will sell and dispose of them as their majesties may order. And I will take your possessions and do you all the harm and damage that I can. Yeah, I just want to say something on that. Yes, and that is another very interesting book, Open Veins of Latin America. And this terror, because, yeah, the Spanish brought with them and Columbus and his sons um, immediately began raping the women and they brought dogs with them that were trained to eviscerate the indigenous people and they hung them by their wrists on racks and had the dogs so that they would be right at waist level and they just like chewed out their um, the people's intestines and just killed them as they were, you know, alive and could could see this in incredible terror. And they also talk about in Columbus's son's diaries of the women and, you know, how they raped them and didn't use that word, but, you know, how they use them. And I just think this is so right that this is 
there's so much to say about this, and it's really, really important that we understand what it took for the world to be the way it is now. And that when we say that we're standing in a pool of blood on a pedestal on the backs of African indigenous people, it is so true, it is so correct. And, and we have to be able to, to look at the world as it really is. And this is why we you know, salute Chairman O'Malley Shatella in, um, you know, in just exposing this to us and showing what the world can be when African people and oppressed and colonized peoples have power. Jesse, what did you think? Uhuru, uh, I, I really appreciate this whole study and this whole discussion um, and just really, really salute, like you just said, Chairman O'Malley Chatella's analysis and the way that you laid that out, Chairwoman Penny, and just the, the power of the fact that this is not an academic or abstract uh, philosophical discussion that the ability of the African People's Socialist Party and Chairman Amali Shetela to reclaim control of the narrative, to reclaim the right, the rightful place of African and colonized people as the subjects of history is tied to, it corresponds to the material and economic struggle of African and colonized people to free themselves from being the pedestal upon which capitalism rests. And you've seen, you know, the, the fact that like, that the chairman spoke at Oxford, Chairman Amali Shetela spoke at Oxford Union and, and the proliferation of, of the African internationalist worldview in the world uh, is, you know, represent disturbances in the bourgeois superstructure. And that's just going back to how you started off your presentation and just quoting from what the chairman had to say about the economic base and the superstructure. Uh, I really appreciated that as a way to understand this whole podcast of White Lies Shattered, that, you know, the war of ideas directly relates to the literal war for resources, power, and national liberation. And also the part that, that, you've, that you quoted, uh, Chairwoman Penny, to frame this whole discussion around the, uh, the, the motive force in all society is the production and reproduction of life. And that under capitalism, African people have been forced to produce and reproduce life for white people, not for themselves. And then as the chairman says, history is the summation of the production of a society's production and reproduction of life. So if if the if history is part of the superstructure and the superstructure reflects the economic base and the economic base is capitalist, parasitic you know, exploitation of African people, denying African people the ability to produce and reproduce life for themselves, and history is the summation of the production and reproduction of life, then of course, white history is going to be a distortion, a lie, uh, and it's going to require the erasure of the truth about African and colonized people. And it, it just reminds me of, of what I've heard Chairman Omalish Shetela say before, that history is not innocent. Philosophy is not innocent. Language is not innocent. And these history textbooks and universities are meant to reproduce the ideology of, of Columbus and the conquistadors and, and white power and the Thomas Jefferson. The colonial narrative, yeah. Exactly. And so I think this is such an important mm -hmm. discussion. This, is, uh, this podcast, is, it's more than just a podcast. It's, it's, a, it's an extension of the real struggle that African people are making to shatter the colonial narrative and, and, and you know, set the record straight 
So it's, it's really exciting. And, you know, it was just making me think about the way that, you know, all these monuments are, of colonialism are coming down in the past year. These monuments of colonial, you know, uh, mm-hmm. genocidal monsters have been torn down. And African internationalism is doing more than just tearing down the monuments of colonialism. It's, it's tearing down colonialism itself. And we can be a part of that as white people and rejecting right. this and jumping off the pedestal and fighting for reparations to African people. So I thought this was, this was excellent and uh, yeah. really appreciate the whole presentation. Uhuru. Uhuru, you know, Jesse, Penny, what, what this, what I really appreciate about it, appreciate about this discussion too, is just the reckoning that's required of us as white people in this period. If we're going to overturn this delusion we've been under for like 600 years, that we're the center of the damn world, right? That like everything turns around us, that we are the most brilliant, rational uh, people that, that have ever existed. When, when the reality is like when, when, when you say that this is a, a parasitic thing, that when Chairman Amalia Chatella points out that capitalism was not born out of curiosity, it was born parasitic. It was born as as imperialism, and that to, to this day, our little white lives require you know drone strikes in Pakistan, po- proxy wars of genocide in the Congo, police murders like what happened to George Floyd, the oppression on reservations of, of the indigenous, the, the prison economy, uh, which is just packed to the gills with black people. Uh, that, that this is not some sort of uh, character assassination. To say that that imperialism, that capitalism is parasitic, it's descriptive, it's an objective reality. And um, I think that there's also some really disturbing thing that that happens to us in in this process of genuinely believing that that we're the center of the world, genuinely believing that somehow we deserve to live in this system where our very livelihood comes at the expense of everybody else, that somehow that's correct. That it, it distorts our understanding of what's even real in the world. We cannot see the world objectively if we're trying to defend a system like that. Uh, and we, what it eventually creates is a situation where we, as the colonizer, uh, become used to this mediocrity, right? And, and Chairman Amalia Chatella has talked about this before, the mediocrity of the colonizer, because we never have to face any real competition with other peoples, because who's going to openly compete with, with the colonizer as long as we're, we're this, this genocidal force in the world? So I think it's, it's a very liberating thing for us to, to actually come down off this pedestal of, of genocide that we've been on for six, 600 years and to be able to look at it with, with brutal honesty and, and, and get over that. And, and then we can recognize how absolutely just demands like reparations are that it's it's something that 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 must happen and and that that this system can't go on you know like like you were saying uh penny the 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 world cannot endure parasitic capitalism anymore if you even just just look at what's going on in in texas right now with these uh winter storms and, and a grid that has absolutely no hope of sustaining human life there's there's no future in this system and it's it's very evident that there was never a plan for for any kind of human life to be sustained by the system. When, when you look at its its foul origins in you know dogs ripping apart 
little children and, and coming to this beautiful civilization that, that far outstripped anything Europeans had ever known, only to come in and destroy it and enslave and slaughter the people. Uhuru. So that's why reparations is the way forward. Reparations under the leadership of the African working class and the African People's Socialist Party. Uhuru. Absolutely. Uhuru. Well, uh, Chairwoman Penny Hess of the African People's Solidarity Committee and Jesse Neville, chair of the Uhuru Solidarity Movement, I want to thank both of you for joining us yet again on this second episode of Reparations in Action, the White Lies Shattered series. And today we have officially obliterated the lie that Europe set out to discover a new world in the age of exploration and discovery. Uhuru. 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 You're listening to Reparations in Action. Reparations in Action.